Hello, it's Thursday the 12th of October. I'm Alex von Tunzelman and I'm singing in the rain. Welcome back to Paper Cuts, the modern newspaper review, where we mix eclectic ingredients from the UK's press into a smooth, delicious cocktail. The Sun wants sex on the beach. The Guardian wishes it were cosmopolitan. The Telegraph prefers its whiskey sour. The Daily Star has had quite enough and needs to go home. (laughs) (laughs) And our listener comment today comes from one of our producers, Liam's mum, Amy. Really loved yesterday's show. So many laugh out loud moments. Very good. Heart emoji. Thank you, Amy. We love you too. My mum's never written him. Well, <laughs> that's her job next week. We're out five days a week for your listening delight. And if you'd like to help us, why not join the Paper Cuts Supporters Club? Just visit back.papercutsshow.com. That's B-A-C-K dot papercutsshow, two S's there, dot com, to find out how. There's a link in the show notes. Now, here are the headlines for today's show. Are there no prisons, asked Ebenezer Scrooge, and the answer is no. Judges ordered not to send crims to jail because the jails are full. Throw the book at them. Captain Tom Moore's family confessed to keeping £800,000 from his literary earnings. And is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Physicists suggest we're all just living in a great big computer simulation. Thank goodness. Welcome to Paper Cuts. We read the papers so you don't have to. Thanks for joining us on Paper Cuts, where we're garnishing ourselves with a slice of pineapple, a maraschino cherry and a tiny little umbrella. I'm Alex von Tunzelman and joining me on the show today is journalist and pina colada guy John Ellidge, who says of his cocktail choice, I'm basically a combination of a small child and Del Boy. <laughs> Hi, John. Lovely jubbly. <laughs> also with us is comedian and self-described basic margarita girl, Gronya McGuire. Hi, Gronya. I will not apologise. <laughs> never apologise, never explain your margarita. So what have we got on the front pages today? It's Pretty bleak selection again, John. It is. It's a slight handbrake turn in terms of tone, I think. Over in the eye, we've got invasion fear grips Israel and Gaza, which is actually quite a nice way of summing up the fact that this is not a great situation for anyone, really, is it? The Times has Israeli coalition ready to invade. The Telegraph has a slightly different angle. Royals condemn Hamas attacks as terrorism. If you are wondering what's going on there... The male has been rather more explicit about it. The king calls them terrorists. Why can't the BBC? Right, Gronya, what have you got on the tabloids? Well, the Daily Mirror have a lovely picture from the Pride of Britain Awards, a lovely picture of Rod Stewart, a really nice little leather jacket. He's looking very fetching. So the cover of the Daily Mirror... Death and more death. So that's Mm, uh, their reporting of the situation in the Middle East. Yeah, quite a bleak headline. Then the Sun have gone exclusive family's confession. We pocketed Captain Tom £800,000. A story of Captain Tom's 'er ne'er-do-well family. And then the Daily Star have got the biggest story. We're all living in a simulated reality Matrix may be real. Life might be virtual reality simulation. Yes, really. Yes, really. Brilliant. Thank you, Gronia. Of course, the front pages are still heavily focused on the abject situation in Israel and Gaza in the wake of devastating attacks by Hamas. 
Israel's right-wing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has formed a war cabinet, including the opposition led by Benny Gantz, in Israel. Several of the papers focus on the likelihood of Israel invading Gaza, and the eye also raises fears of an incursion from Hezbollah in Lebanon on Israel's northern border. The Mail and the Telegraph are less focused on the facts on the ground, though, and more on a very particular reaction in the UK. John, what does this all have to do with the BBC? Remarkably little, one might think. The BBC has, as I understand it, a policy to not describe Hamas or indeed any other group, I think, as terrorists in its own voice. It will quote other people calling them terrorists. So like the BBC may report, you know, Hamas, a terrorist organisation according to the British government, which I believe it is, but it won't, if it's just saying Hamas has done this, it will refer to them as militants or some such. And there are, you know, there are logical reasons for this, which is, you know, the BBC is a news organisation rather than a comment factory. It kind of doesn't think it's its job to, to make these decisions. And if you don't want to be seen to be making a judgment either way on a particular cause, which the BBC obviously does not, you have to be very careful with your language. So that's the logic from their point of view. The logic from the point of view of the Daily Mail and the Telegraph is that any excuse to attack the BBC is good. And it doesn't really matter what the kind of horrific wider context is. If they see an attack line, they will use it. And I mean, that misinformation, disinformation, all of that, Gronier, has also come up. I mean, anybody who's on social media will, of course, have seen plenty of disinformation going around. And I know that organisations like BBC Verify are trying to debunk that as fast as they can, usually can't keep up with the disinformation. But there has also been, you know, some controversial reporting from some politicians and newspapers, some confusion about the facts more widely. I mean, for instance, yesterday we had several British papers running these horrendous front pages claiming that some Israeli victims of the Hamas attacks were beheaded. And last night, Joe Biden in the US appeared to confirm this story, saying he'd seen a picture that confirmed this. And then the White House very quickly rolled that back and the Israel Defence Forces also declined to comment on this story. So it's, you know, I mean, obviously, we all know that we shouldn't place huge amounts of trust in stuff we see on social media. But what about conventional media? How can we know what to believe when we read it? I think it's just so confusing. And I think I usually, at your story breaks, I go onto the BBC and then I go on The Guardian and then I go on Twitter. And then especially at the moment, Twitter feels like it's like a choose your own adventure. Like mm. you just decide, OK, what what is happening based on what has just popped up on my feed right now? And I did have to check how to pronounce this word earlier. It feels a real raw shark test. It is not pronounced how it's spelt, guys. Um, <laughs> um, and it's you. It's just it's such a confusing story, and you just it's like everybody's living in their own version of reality, and because it's changing so quickly, and it feels like nobody really knows anything about what's actually happening, and nobody wants to to be on the wrong side of history. I don't know if that's even the right. For you want to, you know, be standing up for the right people, but then it's so confusing to know which version of the story to believe. So, yeah, it's very difficult. The front pages of the Telegraph, Times and the Express this morning all give us the story that judges have been told not to send criminals to prison next week because there's no room for them. John, what's going on here? 
So, basically, the senior presiding judge of England and Wales, a guy called Lord Justice Eds, has ordered Crown Court judges who actually pass the sentences to delay sentencing hearings for criminals while they're on bail. So, like, these are, you know, people who've actually been convicted, sometimes of horrible, violent crimes, will now not be going to prison immediately because there isn't the space for them, because we li- because prisons are literally full. And this is obviously, you know, this is a horrifying story for, for the, the, the right-wing press. It kind of feeds into their sort of demonology, the idea that, you know, convicted criminals are just kind of wandering the streets. But it is also kind of their fault for, for cheerleading austerity <laughs> and nimbyism <laughs> and all the other things that have prevented the British state from investing in its infrastructure and maintaining important systems like that of prisons. So it does feel like it, it, it is the latest of many, many symbols of just the country just sort of slightly falling to bits, I think. And is it a consequence, really, of, you know, the government inventing more and more crimes, you know, criminalising more and more activity, but actually not having a criminal justice system that can remotely accommodate, you know, that number of convictions or anything like that? I mean, the total prison population in the UK is now 88,100. That's the highest numbers since records began 120 years ago. Number of spaces in the male prison estate yesterday were 124. Yeah, which is, I mean, I can't do that maths in my head, but that's not a big percentage, is it? That's a tiny <laughs> pretty number. Pretty small, pretty small. Um, I don't know about the expansion of the idea of, of crime. I'm very much not an expert in the criminal justice system. My suspicion, based on everything else I've done in my life, is that that's largely a result of growing population. And just like, you know, if as we have more people in this country... Statistically speaking, more of them are going to commit the crimes that require imprisonment, and we've not we've not kept up with the necessary investment. If you if you want to keep going with the same prisons policy and a bigger population, you are going to need a larger prisons estate. Um, I do question the the way in which this is being handled. There is it does also say in the reports that you know some prisoners might be let out early. Presumably, those will be for the kind of lighter crimes. The most serious offenders, I think, will be be locked up in in the cells at magistrates' courts on a temporary wow. basis. Which is you know these are not meant to be long term. This is this is like I think this is the prison equivalent to being forced to live in a premier inn. <laughs> So the Times leads on rapists will go free, as judges are told, that prisons are full. But Gronya, I mean, do we jail any rapists anyway? I mean, is this going to make any difference in this country? Look, is there an argument, and I'm just coming up with ideas, for non-violent crimes, we just reintroduce sending people to Australia? (laughs) (laughs) For the non-violent crimes... For the cheeky boys. Just a bit naughty. Yeah. Isn't there a risk that people start committing non-violent crimes (laughs) to get off this ridiculous... Island, because that sounds quite good to me right now. Australia's doing pretty well. It is. I mean, yeah. it's a great deal. The weather's better. Yeah. There's quite a lot of spiders. A bit off putting, but the food's lovely. Yeah, and I just think what will rehabilitate people more than surfing, a very relaxed culture, good vibe. Alf Stewart lives there. He'll sort. He sorts. He's very good at sorting tear away kids out. <laughs> so. Well, you heard it here first. That's our new policy (laughs) suggestion. Hope that helps. (laughs) 
Captain Tom's legacy betrayed, says The Sun, which has splashed this story over the front page and two pages inside. Piers Morgan interviewed Hannah Ingram Moore, daughter of the late World War II veteran Captain Tom Moore, who raised millions for the NHS during the pandemic by walking around his garden. Gronya, what have Captain Tom's family done now? Well... The ultimate nepple babies. <laughs> I think we can agree. We thought Brooklyn Beckham was embarrassing. These are really stepping up to the plate. So. At least he took his photographs and published his book. <laughs> That's true. Uh, well, speaking of books, it's the news that they benefited financially from the sales of Captain Tom's book, even though it was suggested to the public that all the the money from the book would go to his charity, his foundation. And then it's the news that this is just so I find it so hilarious. I admire them that they built. Did they build or they wanted permission to build a spa in I mean, they wanted... It's what he would have wanted. <laughs> it's what he would have wanted. Oh he was very good. No, he loved exercise. He yeah. loved going for a bit of a walk. Why wouldn't he have wanted to go for a swim? So they did. They built a pool house with the changing rooms, toilets and showers. Wow. I mean, it's just... You get I, that Barbados holiday feeling all year round. Oh, yeah, they, and they that's another thing they cover in the story, that they took him on a holiday to Barbados. And they they apparently got furlough money as well. They got £47,500 in COVID loans. I mean... They've done a lot of ways in. But, I mean, John, the headline on Piers Morgan's comment on this in The Sun is not illegal but immoral. Now, we're hearing a lot of these phrases at the moment, aren't we? I mean, where are the boundaries? What's going on here? Well, the good news is I don't think we'll be sending them to prison. Um, (laughs) No, so, so like, part of the story is that the profits from Captain Tom's free books did not, as I think a lot of people who were buying them imagined, they did not contribute to the charity, which then went right. on to NHS mm. workers. This was money that remained in the family. And Hannah Ingram Moore has said that actually that was that was what he wished for, that like he wanted and that is not actually a crazy thing to imagine that someone, you know, we all want to provide for our families, don't we? It is possible that, you know, Captain Tom himself thought, like, you know, some of I've written these books, maybe this is my legacy. Piers Morgan does say that this has betrayed his legacy. I'm not sure that's true because, well, I mean, what what is Captain Tom's legacy, really? It, it is possible that he wanted his legacy to be for his daughter and her family to have a pool house. I mean, a lot, <laughs> a lot of people want to, they want to pass on something better than they had to their kids. Why yeah. should Captain Tom be any different about that? And what I love in this editorial by Piers Morgan, he basically claims that he discovered... Captain Tom. Right. Was he hanging out with Meghan Markle? (laughs) (laughs) And I just think it's hilarious for Piers Morgan to basically say Christopher Columbus, Tom. (laughs) 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 He was like Colonel Parker to his Elvis Presley. I love it. So I just think for Piers Morgan to accuse Captain Tom's family of taking advantage of his legacy while at the same time claiming that he you know, discovered them is quite funny. Yes, we've got Piers Morgan starting, I absolutely loved Captain Tom Moore and was one of the first to put the spotlight on his amazing walk. I spoke to him many times during and after it. There's a lot of I in that (laughs) paragraph, isn't there? (laughs) 
Matrix may be real, screams the front page of the star. Boff reveals something we don't understand, but sounds 100% legit and also a little bit frightening. John, what is 100% legit, but also a bit frightening? So this is about the research of a guy at the University of Portsmouth called Professor Melvin Vopson. Good name. (laughs) Strong boffin name. (laughs) He's got a strong boffin look as well. He's like, we're really sort of leaning into the boffin vibes here. He says, my studies point to an interesting possibility that we don't live in an objective reality and that the entire universe might be just a super advanced virtual reality simulation. Basically, we're living in Tron. Um, (laughs) This is what I can't quite work out here is like, this is actually quite an... This theory's been around for a while. This has been around the blocks, right? Because like, the idea is like, if civilization ever gets to the point that it creates these supercomputers that can basically run simulations of the level of detail required to reconstruct reality, then just mathematically, the odds are we're living in one of them. Because if it's theoretically possible, there's going to be far more of those than there are objective realities. But I don't quite understand what Professor Vopson has done or why the star has decided to report it today, other than the fact that they're the Daily Star and they're not going to lead on the Middle East. Are they? No, no, they're not. Well, I mean, I suppose, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is a kind of reheated theory. I mean, he's a physicist, Professor Vopson, but of course, this goes back to philosophers like Jean Baudrillard talking about the notion of hyperreality, which is a state in which you can't tell the difference between reality and a simulacrum of reality. So, When you said before the show that you were going to go there, I genuinely thought you're I kidding. was totally not kidding. Yeah. I was going to do Baudrillard paper cuts and now you all know what that means. <laughs> there is something actually about this that does feed back into a serious story about how we understand the differences between reality, fake news, all of this kind of stuff. I mean, it is quite hard to tell these differences. It is very confusing. Gronya, does this mean I don't have to do my tax return? First of all, you don't have to do your tax return. I kind of either do, way. I kind of do. <laughs> Just vibe it, see what happens. Say <laughs> <laughs> so I'm your I was your tax I mean the prisons are full advisor, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you actually a qualified financial advisor? Uh, <laughs> yes I am. <laughs> <laughs> this is I've long suspected we are living in the Matrix because there's a minor character in the Matrix called Cypher. He figures out we're living in the Matrix. He asks, he said, Okay, fine, I'll stay in the Matrix, but make me famous. And I'm convinced that's what Rita Ora did. (laughs) I'm convinced, because I don't know if you remember, suddenly Rita Ora was famous. And I feel like none of us had any say or any involvement in that. Suddenly she went from nowhere to everywhere. So I think Rita Ora's career is evidence that we are living in a matrix. So what about in the papers today? Are there any good headlines, John? So firstly, uh, in the Daily Mirror, there is a story about how climate change is threatening crop harvests and will hit production of drinks such as pale ales and IPAs, which perhaps explains why I paid £14 for two lagers last night. Whoa. Uh, Anyway, the headline on the story is fail ale. Very nice. Fail ale. Meanwhile, in the Star... I don't even know if you call it. They've got a nib, a news in brief. It's like literally about 50 words, if that, about how uh, the names of the new bin lorries in the Torridge district of Devon have been chosen by public vote. And they are called things like the Grim Sweeper. Ah, oh, very good. Bin Deanna Jones <laughs> and Bagger for Christie. <laughs> um, and the headline on the story is truck fans sweep up. 
So in The Sun, there's a story that Noel Gallagher says his two cats had nervous breakdowns because of the drug fuel parties he used to throw. And the headline is Mug and Roll Stars. Ah, and he's quite mean about his cats in the piece, isn't he? He says they were called Benson and Hedges and he said they were lightweights. <laughs> I mean, I just, I mean, I know he had a wild 90s, but I didn't realise, uh, yeah, cats were involved. And then uh, another headline in the sun it's the story of the ongoing dysfunction of daytime television shows on ITV and the headline is this morning has broken wow well I can tell you what I'm really annoyed people are going how how will this morning survive without Holly Willoughby Um, we're living through Richard and Judy erasure (laughs) if this morning could survive Richard and Judy leaving, they'll be fine with their Holly Willoughby. I'm sorry. Now, let's indulge our notions of living in an alternative reality even further with the features sections. What have we found today? Gronya, as our resident celebrity breakup expert, (laughs) you've got a big one. Oh, my God. It's a story we all were worried about. We all suspected. Our hearts are broken that it's been confirmed that Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith have low-key been splitting up, basically. Low-key been splitting up. Yeah, low-key. They they, they low-key split it up, apparently, seven years ago. Oh. Seven years ago. And I just find this, it's so fascinating. So she's got a book coming out and she revealed in her book that they haven't been romantically involved for nearly a decade, but they still sort of are a public couple. And I think that's so fascinating. You know, our idea of a celebrity, I mean, the reality of being a a celebrity couple, because that's what they are. They're like a brand. They're like the Beckhams, the Smiths. The fact that there's such a big difference between their public image and the reality of their relationship. You know, these are Famous, like, that's their job, basically, to be married. So it's so fascinating that there's such a gulf between the image we have of them and the reality of, of what the relationship looks like. And it casts a bit of a different light, doesn't it, on the thing that kind of really perhaps was very difficult for their brand, which was the Oscars slap. Yeah. So this is when Chris Rock was hosting the Oscars, insulted Jada Pinkett Smith, made a pretty unpleasant comment about her losing her hair, which was for medical reasons. Mm. And Will Smith got up on stage and whacked him one. Yeah. Well, see, it even goes back further than that, because a few years back, there were rumours that Jada had had an affair with a younger singer. Mm. And then her and Will went on the red table, her talk show that she has with her mother and her daughter. And they had this big, like, let's be honest, better marriage. And they're both crying. And then they said, yeah, our marriage is complicated, but it works for us. And then they actually said this. I thought it was so mad. They said, bad marriage for life. Right, what? (laughs) (laughs) You somehow have forgotten this. They said, bad marriage for life. That was like, and then they high-fived. What? Just like... (laughs) Okay, you know, I'm going to declare my interest. I'm a divorcee. But what? Why would you do this? Why would you think this is a good thing? I think they were sort of saying it in a, like, guys, we're so honest and we're so real. And look at us, like, really, like, telling it like it is. They, yeah, they went on Red Table and they said bad marriage for life. And then they high-fived. And it turned out that high-five 
was a lie. Oh, no. They were lying. They weren't bad marriage for life. They had basically separated. Can I just check definitions, though? They are still married, right? They are still legally married, yeah. So badly. But, I mean, the marriage, if they don't get divorced, the marriage is for life. That is true. Maybe what they're talking about here is a legal situation. (laughs) (laughs) If you're talking about, if bad marriage for life means we're not living together, we're not romantically involved, and we're both seeing other people... That is, I suppose, bad marriage for life. I mean, it does sound like a pretty bad marriage. (laughs) I'm going to be honest. John, uh, save us from this. What have you found (laughs) in Vegas? So I've got a lovely story about what you should and shouldn't do at a dinner party. There we go. It's more civilised. Slapping anyone. Daily Star, (laughs) page 16. The headline is Sinner Dates. It's one of those stories that's like, you know, it's very clearly like a, it's a PR story. Like a, a company has done a survey, has done some polling, which is quite easy and cheap to do, packaged up as a press release, and they get it written up with the name on it. It's very effective as a way of getting coverage, except that, like, I read this story an hour ago, and I've already forgotten the name of the company. <laughs> Andrew Peace Wines. Well done, Andrew Peace Wines. So what they've, they've found that no-nos at dinner parties include taking your socks off. Yeah. Vaping at the table. Mm-hmm. Looking at your phone, chatting about politics. I mean, that's most of my social life. <laughs> out Keep those socks on, John. This is a studio. Yeah. <laughs> Outstaying your welcome, boasting about how much you earn. That doesn't happen so much in my circle. Uh, and posting a picture of the host's food to Instagram without asking. Which I can, I get that mm. one. It's like, you know, you, you know people want to like present this stuff well, don't they? It's like, you know, if it's just look at this beige slop, <laughs> people are, people are going to have an issue with it. The more fun bit of the story, though, and it says it lists good things to do at a dinner party. This includes uh, using sex as a conversation starter. <laughs> All right. It is 10 o'clock in the morning as we record this. Um, asking people about their lives rather than talking about yourself. So that's just basically being able to have human conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, seating men and women together rather than in gendered groups. My personal favourite, though, my personal favourite of the good things to do at a dinner party is to check if your guests have any allergies before cooking. So not killing people. Yeah. Killing people at your dinner party is a no-no. It is. I mean, it's a terrible faux pas. <laughs> it is. Uh, you know, awful. Having to call an ambulance before dessert really ruins the mood. What if it's a murder mystery party? <laughs> oh, no, then it's good. That's OK again. Grano, what do you love and hate at a dinner party? I just honestly, hearing about dinner parties, genuinely, it feels like the most decadent lost era like who here has enough space that they can have a dinner party it boggles my brain that is aspirational so speaking of overclustered flats the guardian has an interesting story about housing that we're going to be talking about on our extra bit just for our supporters so if you want to know what a yimby is then you'd best join our supporters club to find out And that's the end of today's Paper Cuts. Thanks to John Ellidge. Thank you very much. And thanks to Gronya Maguire. Gaurav Mila Mahogoth Gokdina. Ooh, fancy. (laughs) Remember, we're now out five days a week and we would be really grateful for your support so we can keep bringing you a plethora of news and views every weekday. We are a 100% independent outfit. No big media owner behind us and we spend £600 a month on papers alone. So if you could chip in just a little to keep us afloat, that would be just fabulous, darling. For as little as £3 a month, you can get every episode without ads. Support us with a little more and you can get extended episodes with extra material plus paper cuts, mugs and devastatingly attractive T-shirts. Follow the show notes to back.papercutsshow.com to find out more. Our beloved supporters get a shout out on the show and here are three now. We read out one each, John. 
Uh, hello, and thank you to Dr. Christopher B. Dornan. The B stands for brilliant. Grania. I want to say hello and thank you so much to Kathleen Allen Conway. And I want to say hello and tarmate to Karen Mosley. I've been Alex von Tanzelman and you've been listening to Paper Cuts on a day when female frogs are reportedly faking their own deaths to fend off male suitors. Better than kissing hundreds of them in the hope <laughs> one will turn into a prince. See you tomorrow. Paper Cuts was written and presented by Alex von Tanzelman with John Ellidge and Gronia Maguire. The producer was Liam Tate and the assistant producer was Adam Wright. Audio production was by me, Jade Bailey. Music by Simon Williams, socials by Jess Harpin, design by Jim Parrott and original art by Modern Toss. The executive producer is Martin Boytosh, managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and group editor is Andrew Harrison. Paper Cuts is a Podmasters production. Paper Cuts.